Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. But first, we start with the snow and ice on Metro Vancouver streets. More snow on the way. Be careful out there. Drive to the conditions if you have to drive at all. Yesterday was a mess on many metro roads, including slipping and sliding cars on 104th Avenue in Surrey. This got crazy. Eight-car pileup, including an out-of-control tractor-trailer sliding into the back of a fire truck. Have a listen to this report from Global News. Firefighters actually had to like, dive out of the way of a, a semi-truck coming down, and it struck the rear end of our, uh, our quint. It turns into an eight-vehicle pileup, including a minivan that appears to be from California. One civilian and one firefighter are taken to hospital with minor injuries. Nearby residents say this hill proves treacherous every winter. Every time it snows, sometimes only with an inch of snow, people don't know how to drive. People don't know how to drive. You know, Metro Vancouver drivers get that rap, right? They don't know how to drive in the ice and snow. Is that true? We'll talk about that today. Sterling Arndt is my guest, owner of OK Tire. He's our go-to winter tire guy. Starling. Sterling, thanks for coming on today. You're welcome, Mike. Okay, what's it like out there? What, are, you, are you busy in your store? People coming in desperately looking for winter tires? Oh yeah, it's been it's been crazy. Actually, even the last six weeks have been pretty crazy since the first snow, but it's it's definitely gone up uh, to the next level now. What kind of tires are people looking for? They're looking for the ones with the the snowflake symbol on the side. I bet, right? Correct. All weather or are uh, good winter tires. Yes. Hey, tell me about that snowflake symbol. Like people are familiar with this. I actually looked for this on the tires on my family minivan the other day. I thought it was on there. I'm taking a look at the tires. I'm like, oh man not there i don't have the right tires here so tell me about that like it's it's a symbol it's got like a mountain and a snowflake what does that mean yeah so it's got a mountain uh, a a symbol of a mountain with a snowflake in the middle of it 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 essentially means that the tires are rated for winter conditions snow and ice um but generally they're also designed to stay on the car all year round so it's a really good option for a lot of city drivers yeah, this is what I'm going to get on my next set of tires for sure. Why, when you say they're re- they're rated for winter driving, like what is different about them? Like the treads deeper, I, I guess. Yeah, it treads deeper. The compound's a little softer, so it'll actually grip oh. the ice and snow. As whereas your basic M and S tire is more like a summer tire or, or a three season tire. Okay, I was taking a look at the tread on my tires the other day, and it was like, eh, you know, there, there's some tread there, but could probably do with more. Like, what is what is the standard rule here? When you're taking a look at the tread on your tires, how do you know when it's time for new ones? Well, in theory, they have um, they have little wear bars that indicate that it's at two thirty seconds of an inch, and that's in theory they're worn out. But generally speaking, you want to be four to five thirty seconds of an inch minimum to get any kind of traction um, in these kind of conditions. Okay. What else do you recommend for winter driving right now? Like... Okay, make sure you've got the proper tires on. Make sure the air pressure is correct. By the way, on air pressure, should you decrease the air pressure in your tires in in winter? No, not necessarily. You always want to try to stay with um, within that the placard on the side of the door of your car. It'll, okay. it'll tell you what the. If you decrease the pressure, the um, you'll 
you'll get the little light on the dash telling you your pressure is too low from the tire pressure sensors. Yeah. Um, the car the car is designed for that pressure that's on the placard that's on generally on the driver's door. So you want to stick to that. What do you recommend? Okay, for people who are out driving today in the days ahead, if you really have to, if you got to go out in this stuff, what do you recommend? Like slow down, right? Slow down for sure. Full tank of gas. Um, windshield washer fluid, make sure your wipers are proper and working. Just really basic stuff. Yeah, keep your windshield fluid topped up, slow down, keep lots of room between you and the next guy. You know, that black ice can sneak up on you. Right? Exactly, exactly. You know, if you know, you're just describing that, that report was describing a hill in Surrey. You know, if you can avoid the major hill when there's a lot of snow, that's probably a good idea too. Um, it's just a lot of common sense that we seem to lose in, in situations like this. Okay, let me ask you, put a theory to you and get your thoughts on this. So here's the theory. Metro Vancouver drivers get an unfair, bad rap that they're lousy drivers. They don't know how to drive in the snow. They live in Lotus Land, La La Land. They get a couple of dumps of snow a year and, and they lose their minds. They don't know how to drive in the stuff. Everybody's heard that. But here is the other side of the coin. That... It's an unfair rap. It's a bad rap because we've got difficult conditions here. We've got hills in the city that are difficult to drive under any circumstances in, in snow. And the snow on the coast is heavy, wet, slushy snow, not like the dry, powdery snow in the interior, easier to drive in in the interior. Are you buying that, or do you think, Sterling, that Metro drivers are bad drivers? I think there's a little bit of truth in both. Um, you know, honestly, I, we get spoiled some winters in the past with not as much snow as, obviously, the rest of the country. So I do think there's a lot of lack of preparation and comprehens- comprehension on a lot of people. But, yeah. um, you know, if we, if we all just slowed down and prepared our cars properly, I, I think most of these problems that we see on the highways and and roadways would would be diminished a little bit at least. What do you do if your if your car starts slipping and sliding and you're out of control? Do you turn your, the you turn the steering wheel toward the direction you're sliding in, or is it the other way around? Well, the general simple rule is if where you want to go, you're generally going to look where you want to go. So if you're sliding to one side, you're going to you look the other way where you want to get the car going again, and your your hands will follow where you look to steer back into the spin. Sterling, where is your store located? Uh, we're in Vancouver on Kingsway, just a little west of Victoria Drive. I'll let you get back to work. I know you're selling lots of tires there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it, Mike. Anytime. All right, welcome back. Here we go now with the surge in shoplifting. Lots of reports about a spike in shoplifting across the country. This is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And it doesn't matter what kind of store it is, either grocery store, hardware store, clothing store. I talked to a guy recently who does security at a fancy cosmetics store. And he said they get ripped off every single day. People come in, steal stuff. Every day they get hit. Sometimes they work in teams. One person comes in, distracts a store employee, and then you've got another shoplifter loads up on stuff, and then they scamper. They are out of there. Now, last week on the show, we talked about this. Check this out. I talked to Chris 
Dancy. He is the owner of the Bone and Biscuit Pet Food Store. And he was getting ripped off all the time, too, including by one particular shoplifter he figures hit his store five times. Caught her red-handed, had had her picture up in their security video. So here's what he did. He put he put her picture up on the front door of the store. Have a listen to what he told me last week. I basically took an image from one of the videos that we had of her and put it on the front door and basically had a little sign there that said, you know, we're, we're a small business and stop, stop stealing from us. She had come back about five days ago uh, with a companion. Uh, the companion saw her photo on the door, pointed at it, and she took the companion and walked off. Okay, so it seems to be working for Chris at his pet food store. Let's check in with Richard Pridham now. Richard is the co-owner of KMS Tools, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Richard, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, you bet. Um, where is K- yeah, we, where is we, where is KMS Tools located? You got you got multiple locations. Yeah, we are uh, 14 locations uh, across uh, BC and Alberta right now. And, uh, yeah, we're certainly a target. Yeah, no, congratulations on all your success there. It's a very cool, cool uh, enterprise you have going there. Richard, talk to me about shoplifting. How often do you guys get hit there? Uh, very regularly. I, I would say probably almost uh, daily as well. Um, it's really hard to identify in all cases, of course. Um, but uh, uh, but uh, we're getting more and more sophisticated with the technology we have, so it's uh, it's certainly uh, clearing it up for us. So, yeah. And when you're talking about a, like a store like yours, KMS Tools, I mean, you're talking about some high end. You guys sell power tools and stuff in there, right? Yeah, a lot of power tools, uh, a lot of automotive hand tools. Um, you know, we we've got uh, into welding uh, supplies and and whatnot. Um, and some of the accessories and stuff are, are very small, but worth uh, worth quite a lot. So yeah, uh, we do lock we do lock a lot of it up, but uh, you can't lock everything up. So so how what how what kind of tactics are you seeing? Do people come in? They just put stuff under their shirt, or do they do they ever you ever see people coming in working in teams trying to distract employees while someone else steals stuff? Yeah, definitely definitely seeing people working in teams. Um, one of our Alberta stores uh, recently caught uh, uh, two two separate occasions. Um, customers would come in with their kids and their strollers, and they were jamming stuff underneath their kids' seats uh, in the strollers, and uh, and so and even uh, had the kids uh, trained to grab and stuff off the shelves too. So fortunately, oh. we caught those. Uh, but uh, you know that's how. That's how brazen these people can be, right? Oh, man. This is like a family shoplifting operation here. That's that's crazy. Speaking to Richard Pridham, KMS Tools. So, Richard, you mentioned that um, you've got... So have you got video surveillance in your stores? Yeah, we do uh, lots of cameras. Um, and, uh, um, of course, uh, uh, we've trained our staff on, uh, you know, basically we call it intentional hospitality. So, basically, just always uh giving the best customer service and and showing uh, uh well that works two ways it uh it basically shows that uh we're there to help them but it also uh, lets them know that we uh we're watching them too for the the guys who are good customers they love the service for the guys who are 
trying to shoplift, well, they, they hate having uh, the eyes on them. So. Oh, wow. I think that's really, that's really wise. Or what did you call that? Intentional? What did you call it? Intentional Hospitality. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Intentional hospitality. Yeah, I can see how that would work. Okay, let's talk about this idea of, let's say you have a repeat shoplifter, you've caught them red-handed, you've got their photo. You heard from the guy at his pet food store, he put the photo up on the front door of his store. Now, I think you guys have done that at your stores too, is that right? Yeah, yeah, we have. Um, uh, one one example of that actually working uh, was uh, uh, a customer of ours saw his son on the on the board and uh, brought his son in to make it right with us. So we had uh, identified his son and uh, put him on the board, and uh, so so that worked out really well. The father didn't want uh, his name uh, smeared basically because his son had uh, shoplifted so so that worked out wow. really well and, and very very similar to the pet store the uh, we've had people come in see their picture and and turn around and leave so wow okay so you have oh man can you imagine a father going into the store and you see they see their kids photo up as a shoplifter so this dad he was having none of that he he brought the kid in would the kid apologize yeah, yeah, we uh we got some money back. I forget uh I forget all the details. It was a couple of years ago now. Uh oh. I think we uh got a got our money back in the and I think yeah, the tool the tool back for sure and uh he might have made a donation to uh, our charity or something like that as wow. well. So. Wow. Okay, I bet you that kid learned a lesson that day. Yeah, absolutely. So that yeah. that's sort of the old school way of doing it. Right, I guess so. How would you say that putting the pictures up is, is you, so? You think it's effective? Like when you put these pictures up on the, in your store, it's effective at, at deterring it. Yeah, it helps our staff to identify who these uh, people are, um, yeah. and uh, and then of course if they see themselves, uh, that's uncomfortable for them. So um, you know, and our staff they walk in through that door every day, so they're gonna. They're going to be familiar with them, right? So, so we how think you, it helps. How do you know? Uh, you you got to be pretty darn sure you've got the right person, though, right? Like, so how how would you decide if a photo goes up in the wall? It would have to be like irrefutable evidence on your video that they're stealing stuff. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you you don't want to put the wrong picture up there or get to get the wrong, you know. No, no, no. Certainly not. Yeah. So you got to make sure well, that you you've got them like, basically red-handed, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How much how much money do you think you lose from shoplifting? Oh, I I don't know. I don't, it's a it's a scary number to talk about, uh, especially around uh, the the fall and winter months when uh, people were in their bigger coats and and whatnot. It's just just a little easier for them to to hide things and conceal things, right? So, um, but yeah, it's it's uh, many thousands in a in a year. So. Richard, thank you for coming on to share the story today. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Richard Pridham there, co-owner, KMS Tools. That's a, a really successful family company there. They've got locations in Western Canada, got one in Coquitlam. Appreciate his time today. Richard Pridham, KMS Tools there. Yeah, a similar tactic to the guy who owned the pet food store. So if you've got someone red-handed, you know they're a repeat shoplifter. 
put their photo up on the wall. And he says it does deter people from doing it again. How about that guy who saw his kid's photo up on the wall? Brought his kid in there to apologize. What would you do if you saw your kid's photo up on the wall? I think I'd probably do the same thing. I'd, first of all, be shocked. But I think that's a, that is an, seems to be an effective tactic. Now, here is the deal on it, though. We also talked about the, the legalities of this, because you better make sure, darn sure that you've got the right person there. Because this can be kind of a, a risky thing. Like, what if you put a photo up there and they haven't stolen from your store? Then you could be in some trouble. But st- I'll tell you, more and more stores getting fed up. They're fighting back. Have a listen to Rui Rodriguez, Retail Council of Canada. He was my guest on the show last week talking about the victims of shoplifting. Have a listen. Shoplifting really has gotten this connotation that there, there isn't any victim. Uh, and what we've seen in Canada over the last year is an escalation in prolific offenses, violent offenses, uh, and there are clear victims. It's people. And talking about the surge in shoplifting across Canada, you heard my conversation there with Richard Pridham, co-owner of KMS Tools. He said they get lots of shoplifting at their stores. They sell some high-end power tools in there. Yeah, pretty pricey stuff. People are in there ripping stuff off. He said they put the photos up if they have someone uh, they know is a shoplifter. They'll put the photo up on the on the wall. And he even told me one guy brought his kid in there after he saw his kid's photo on the wall, brought the kid in to apologize for shoplifting out in the store. Check this out. Grocery stores across Canada reporting a surge in shoplifting right now with food prices rising as well. Phone me on it. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Brandon in Maple Ridge. Hi, Brandon. Go ahead. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Um, I actually used to work loss prevention undercover for multiple vent stores, grocery stores, any place, whether it was a company or privately. And the big issue with shoplifting is, ironically, the shoplifter has more rights than you realize. Like, if you have to almost witness everything happen or you have to kind of let it go because of the fact is you need to have concrete evidence. Like, if there's even a slight bit of doubt, they actually get away with a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, even one of the guy the guy from the Retail Council of Canada last week told me that putting a photo up on a store a store wall or store window is a little risky because you could, you know, someone could say this is an invasion of privacy. Fight back against you. If you accidentally have the wrong person, that's a huge harassment and oh, yeah. lawsuit on top of that. Um, you'd actually be surprised of actually people who actually commit the shoplifting. I've come into instances where I've had police officers I've busted for shoplifting. What? Like, police officers? The, the, the people you actually realize who shoplift when they get desperate will actually blow you away. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's amazing. Brandon, thank you for calling in with that. Wow. Police officer shoplifting. Holy smoke. Steve in Coquitlam. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I just was uh, wanted to let you know, like, I used to actually be, uh, unfortunately, a shoplifter uh, due to a, a, a serious drug addiction. And I've been sober for a couple of years now, and I actually work for the health authority now. I got my life together and stuff, and I just wanted to let you know that, yeah, the, there definitely is a progression to it. Like, I started out just doing, a, you know, a couple little things here and there, and then by the end of it, I would have tasers and bear spray and I'd be like, 
you know, almost like working for a guy. I'd know what they want, and, and it, it got to be a pretty serious thing for me, right? So it's, it's definitely a big issue. Wow. You know? Okay, well, I'm yeah. glad you turned. I'm glad you turned your life around. When you were stealing stuff, what was your success rate? Did you get caught a lot, or did you were successful most of the time? I was successful most of the time. I mean, I did get caught. I, I ended up being a prolific offender and all that stuff too, right? Over the years, but you know, more often than not, I'd get away and like, and and it just like it just got worse and worse with the desperation. Like I said, like I'd ended up doing like a lot of grabbing runs in the end because I was starting to get known in the community and my my picture was probably up in a lot of places, unfortunately, and that kind of stuff. So. You know, and then it got a lot more dangerous because there's, you know, vehicles waiting outside and people might get hit when you're taking off. And, you know, there's the, the potential for violence and stuff. Right. So I'm really glad I got you, out of it. When I did. How did you how did you turn your life around? Did you get you got off drugs, right? I did. I, I actually ended up in, in custody in Surrey pretrial. And then um, uh, when I got released, I got I got a, a good bail plan together and got bailed out to go to a, a local treatment center. And then uh, I participated in that place, and I get, kind of put my heart rate into it, and then uh, just never looked back. And now, yeah, I actually work for uh, Correctional Health Services now, helping guys that are getting released from jail. Wow. Steve, thank yeah. you for calling in. Thank you for calling in, man. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that you've turned your life around. Glenn in Maple Ridge. Hi, Glenn. Go ahead. Wow, Steve, good job, buddy. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. glad you uh, turned your life around as well, yeah. I was yeah. going to piggyback on your first caller there. Uh, my, I had a son, my youngest son, who was working at one of the major food chains, and um, they were told, uh, uh, you're not going to, uh, unless you absolutely see everything, don't harass anybody, even though you know they're stuffing pork chops in their pants or shoving a head of lettuce into their shirt or they were told just to let them walk out. They don't want the confrontation, and and the shoplifting is horrific in the grocery stores. And and uh, that was before it's even was before it's even really bad inflation like it is now. So so yeah, yeah I, there's not much they can do. The, thank you, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Like I've heard that as well. Like some store owners been told if you see someone shoplifting, you can tell a manager or whatever, but don't don't intervene. You don't know what someone's going to do. Heck, they could, they could pull a knife on you. Who knows? Blair in Abbotsford. Blair, you got 30 seconds here. Hey, just uh, jumping on. Yeah, I not vigilantism, but why don't they have some big guys in the store and arrest these guys under a citizen's arrest and hold them till the cops come? Because it's just going to continue getting worse and worse. All right, let's talk about the Metro Vancouver rental market. It is a jungle out there for sure. If you're looking for a decent, affordable place to rent, well, you've got my sympathy. It's a really, really tough market out there. Rents are way up. Vacancies are down. There's lots of scams out there, too. You have to be careful when you look at some of these online listings. Some of them are just straight-up scams. Very difficult to find a place right now. Let's check in with Chris Brayshaw. Chris is the owner of Pulp Fiction Books, Vancouver's legendary independent bookstores. They carry new, used, and out-of-print books. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Good morning. You, you, you bet, Chris. How many Pulp Fiction stores do you, do you have? Uh, we have three. One three in Kitsilino, flagship at Main and Broadway, one on Commercial Drive. Okay, very popular stores. Congratulations with your success there, Chris. So let's talk about your search for a place to rent. You're looking now, right? 
Yeah, so uh, I am one of those folks who rented from the same person in the same place for a long, long time. So I've been uh, 24 years in my last place and uh, found myself in the last month or so looking for a new place to live. And I had seen all these uh, horror stories online and I'd heard friends talk and I, I figured that a lot of this was embellished and that, you know, I would experience no difficulty because I obviously was going to be a great tenant. And uh, if anything, all the horror stories that I have heard have been significantly underplayed from what I am encountering right now in the Vancouver rental market. Oh, dear. Sorry to hear about that. Why did you have to move after 24 years? Uh, unit is uh, unit is being sold. Uh, unit has some, uh, you know, it's a uh, it's an old unit in an old building, and it's uh, probably approaching the end of its natural life. Yeah. And uh, yeah, time time to go. Frequent floods, time to go. Yeah, yeah. Well, it happens to a lot of people, right? They they're moved out not by choice, and now you're stuck with looking for a place. So let's talk about your search for a place to live. You've been you've been tweeting about this. This is where I first got onto your story, Chris. So tell me about some of the places you've looked at. Well, uh, I'll I'll start with uh, I'll start with the one that is probably the uh, the contender for uh, you know place place of the year out of everything that I have seen, which at this point is about uh, twenty units. Uh, showed up to a place in a fairly uh, what is considered a fairly good, desirable uh, Vancouver neighborhood. Uh, joined the uh, you know the obligatory cattle call of I think there were uh, sixteen folks there to view the uh, to view the unit. Uh, we were taken upstairs to it, and uh, it literally looked like a bar fight had concluded maybe, <laughs> you know, half an hour before. Uh, oh. So, uh, stench of marijuana throughout the unit. Not not just like little wisps, but like stench. Uh, closet doors torn off hinges, uh, blinds askew. Um, what looked like a whole liquor store's worth of empties laying around on the floor and in the sink. And uh, most impressively, in the in the bathroom, a ginormous, I'm going to say, two-foot-wide hole that had been covered over with, uh, like, uh, asphalt roofing tiles that had been uh, nailed and thumbtacked in a place. And uh, I, think, uh, I think many of us were in shock, and, uh, and we're just, you know, trying to figure out if this was a joke or not. But uh, I figured, okay, I'm here, I might as well ask some questions. So I started just with the with the hole in the in the ceiling, and I was informed, "Oh, don't worry about that. Uh, no water has come out of that for uh, for two years or so." <laughs> and I said, "Okay, that's good to know." But you know, are you you know you're asking uh, you're asking nineteen hundred dollars a month for this unit? You know, are you planning to to fix it before a before a tenant moves in? Oh, uh, you can uh, you can request that at the time you fill out your application. Somebody else said, you know, are you going to put the closet doors back on the hinges or paint what looks like somebody, like, you know, punched a hole in the wall? Oh, you can ask for that. Ask for that. Okay. And uh, I kind of figure that the uh, maximum amount of leverage that a tenant is ever going to have with a landlord is when they're about to uh, fork over a great stack of rental checks. Yeah. And uh, someone's attitude who is that lackadaisical to doing, like, basic cosmetic maintenance or maybe looking make, making a unit look like it wasn't totally destroyed by the last tenant yeah. things are only going to go downhill from there oh man chris my god what part of town was this now this is over in fairview fairview yeah, oh, which, nice which neighborhood. 
considered a fairly desirable Vancouver neighborhood. Yeah, sure, sure it is. Yeah, Fairview is nice. And, and $1,900 a month, wow, that's a lot. Uh, one bedroom, was it? Uh, one one bedroom, and okay. according to uh, according to Craigslist, where I, like every other person in Greater Vancouver, is looking at rentals right now, uh, Craigslist informs me that is a bargain uh, for Greater mm. Vancouver, where the current average, I checked yesterday, was a little over $2,700 for a yes. one-bedroom unit. Yeah, no, I was just thinking that the 1900 as much as high as that is, is probably lower than, than typical, but, you Absolutely, know, I Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so and that, that's a bit, that's a bit of a uh, that's a bit of an eye opener too. I mean, maybe I am dating myself here, but uh, when I started renting, and I guess uh, I guess my first rental was in uh, nineteen ninety or so in Kitsilano, yeah. I paid uh, seven hundred fifty dollars a month, and that was right. at, at the time that was that was considered you know like medium to medium to high. I so find it kind that, of um, kind of funny that or astonishing that a guy would show a place with holes in the wall and liquor bottles strewn around and the place smells like a grow up like you know obviously it doesn't seem to care what well, it looked like I, I i think the i mean you can see the answer to that in the cattle call that shows up yeah. to every viewing um this is a situation where demand radically exceeds supply and uh, some landlords that i have seen have been super conscientious about uh, pointing out flaws or saying that they have a you know, difficult choice in trying to pick, you know, one tenant from maybe in some cases, you know, 35, 40, 50 people who've seen a unit and have applied for it. Um, so I sympathize with that. But there are others who are definitely looking at a lineup at the door. And, uh, you know, when there is a product that there is limited demand for and there's lots of supply or there's lots of demand and no supply, price goes up. And, uh, you know, those, uh, those landlords are, uh, I think, kind of... Uh, Taking advantage of a situation where uh, all the uh, all the power is in their court. Speaking of Chris Brayshaw, Chris is the owner of Pulp Fiction Books in Vancouver. We're talking about his search for a decent, affordable place to rent in the city. So, nineteen hundred bucks a month. And when you asked him about the the repairs, like, are you going to fix that hole in the ceiling above the bathtub? Are you going to put the, the the closet door back on the hinges? And he said, you can ask for that. When you make your application, what what does that mean? Like, I, I think that means that that anything any finger that I have to lift to lift to improve the unit from as is where is um, yeah. that's something that's going to count against you. And basically, the the feeling the feeling I had was that that particular landlord was going to take the very first person who was so desperate that they would take that unit in the condition it was in and say, "Yes, I sign here." I'm not going to have any requests. I'm not going to make any trouble. I am just somehow going to make this yeah. dump, question mark, work for me. Yeah. Well, the people are desperate, right? And they know it. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I have lined up for one bedrooms with, um, with couples. Uh, I've lined up with uh, families, you know, that have a couple of, that have a couple of young kids but they can't afford, you know, a two- or a three-bedroom, so they have somehow determined that a one-bedroom is going to work with uh, with two adults or two or three kids uh, stepping on top of one another. Yeah. Um, some of those units, I, you know, it's like I was like, oh, okay, as a, uh, you know, as, a, as one person, uh, me and my stuff could fill this, fill this unit up without any trouble. I have no idea how, like, parents plus two or three children would, you know, would be able to occupy it, but that's, 
the people I talk to seem perfectly happy and excited by the idea that they might get anything in the market, let alone something that was bigger than a one-bedroom. Last question for you, Chris. How does this make you feel? Is it discouraging about huh? Uh, it's a bit of an adventure. Um, you <laughs> know, I have a, uh, I have a naturally uh, dry or, sight- or sardonic sense of humor. So, um, you know, it's grist for the, uh, for the Twitter mill. But I know I'm, you know, I'm, I know I'm pretty, pretty well off. You know, I'm, I'm self-employed. I have a stable job. I have a fair amount of uh, income to spend on rent. That is not something that, uh, that people who are students or people who are living on disability or uh, people who are just trying to get established in the Vancouver rental market have. And I really feel for those folks. And yeah. I think that we have not done as a community as good a job we have as fiddling around with zoning to build more affordable housing quickly. And I think that... Um, I think that municipalities that are moving away from single-family zoning and are are zoning three- to five-story apartment buildings are doing a really good thing uh, for everybody who is trying to move here and make this community home. Chris, I like your perspective on it. Good luck on your search. I hope you find something soon. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk about the Stanley Park bike lane now. The new park board has voted to cancel the Stanley Park bike lane. The plan now is to remove the bike lane over the coming months. How much will it cost to remove the bike lane? According to an interim city report, oh, around $400,000. That is the cost to remove the bike lane. Phase one of the removal includes putting up 27 new interim signs advising vehicles on changing lane changes there. That'll cost around $25,000. The biggest part of the removal will be the removal of 830 concrete barriers in the park. That'll cost around up to $120,000. Why does it cost so much to remove some concrete barriers? I don't know. This stuff is expensive. What do you want? 400 grand to remove the bike lane. How much did it cost to install the bike lane in the first place? Well, that was $750,000. So we will be well over a million dollars in this exercise here before it's all over. Let's check in with Peter Ladner now. Peter is a cycling advocate, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Peter, thank you for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Happy to be here. Hey, Peter, thanks for being here again. What do you think of this price tag here to remove the bike lane? 400,000 bucks. Well, any amount of money is a waste of money at this point to remove a lane that's going to be replaced in the springtime. Because remember, the second part of the story is they've all the commissioners have promised it's on the, on their motion to have a permanent separated bike lane in place by this summer. So why the rush to move it now? I have no idea because nothing is being gained by this by this uh, action right now. Well, Nobody presumably- wins. Well, presumably they want to restore full vehicle access into the park, right? Isn't that what you would gain? Full vehicle access in the park now has been for a year. Well, I'm talking about the two full lanes, though. Oh, two lanes. Why do you need two lanes? There's no congestion in the park right now, Mike. None. Yeah, yeah. There's no need for two lanes. Hey, Peter, give me your case in favor of the bike lane? Like, why do you think it, you believe it should remain right where it is, correct? Well, okay. When the bike lane went in, 
totally, totally fair call. There were a lot of problems. Parking lots were closed up that didn't need to be closed up. There were problems with access. There was a stupid horse and buggy blocking traffic all the time. But a lot of those problems over the last year have been worked out. It's still not perfect, but why shouldn't there needs to be? I mean, it, it makes good sense for there be, to be a place for people like me with my grandson want to ride around the park, not go on the seawall because there's a whole lot of issues with the seawall. It's closed right now, for one thing, and be able to have a safe ride around the park. The biggest reason people don't cycle is because they feel unsafe. So having a protected lane opens it up to all kinds of people for whom cycling is otherwise inaccessible. Okay. We've talked a lot about this issue on the show, as you're aware. You've been on before to talk about it. Let me play a clip here for you from a previous guest and get your thoughts. Now, this is Vancouver lawyer Phil Rankin. He's a fierce opponent of the bike lane. He was part of the class action lawsuit on behalf of the elderly and disabled Vancouver residents who felt that the bike lane discriminated against them because they can't, they can't ride a bike. They're, they're disabled. And he, he sued over this. Have a listen to his argument against the bike lane here on that point, and I'll get your thoughts. This is Phil Rankin. There's about a third of the park that disabled and elder people can't get to. It also means that on crowded days in the summertime when the bicycle lane is, is in somewhat in use and the other lane is all we've got, that you can't get a picnic and every other thing that people do in large numbers. What do you think of that, Peter, like that argument that, that he makes that a third of the park is inaccessible to people who have got disabilities or other barriers? Well, well I, I don't know what he's talking about. Name that third. But yeah, you can't go to Third Beach. You never could go to Third Beach. There's an unsafe ramp down there. You can't go properly around the seawall because there's a lot of mobility devices that can't get through the gates. You can't get your wheelchair out of that horse and buggy. So, yeah, there are issues. There are curb issues, but it's not the bike lane. You know, that's not the issue. Well, he would argue that it was the bike lane, that because of the restricted vehicle access due to the bike lane, that it discriminated against people who can't ride a bike. Let's be clear. There is adequate vehicle access, has been for a year, throughout the park. There are parking lots. There are more accessible parking places now in the park than there were before COVID. There is what no you, issue with access to the park by vehicle. What do you think? On, I will yeah. grant you, yeah. very crowded, very sunny, hot summer holiday weekend afternoons. There will be congestion. One lane, two lanes, if you had 10 lanes, you'd still be congested. Speaking to cycling advocate Peter Ladner about the Stanley Park bike lane. Hey, Peter, so you believe that the Stanley Park bike lane, is it, as it's formatted and exists now, do you believe that that should that should just remain there, that that's the, that would be the best option going forward? Or, like, are you buying the what the park board is saying right now is, well, we're going to shut down this bike lane, but we're, don't worry, we're going to open up a separate permanent bike lane in the park later? Hey, this is, yeah, of course. Let's get it clear. The bike yeah. lane is supported by two-thirds of the population of Vancouver. BIV, BIV Media Group did a survey. Mario Conseco did the survey. 63% of the people were in favor of a temporary bike lane. The Vancouver Park Board did a survey. 70% of the people were in favor of the bike lane. Every candidate in the last election who campaigned against bike lanes lost. So including Tricia Barker, for whom this was her calling card, there is public support for the bike lane. Let's be clear about that. There should be a bike lane. Now, what they've done now, I think what they should do, 
hold off the 400,000, wait until you wait a few months, see what the study that they're doing will show that the permanent bike lane should be all ABC commissioners want a permanent bike lane. There's going to be a permanent bike lane. Why take apart the one now when you don't know what the permanent one's going to look like? You might end up taking a bunch of concrete barriers out and having to put them all back in again. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so do you therefore think that what we're seeing here is a, is a waste of public money? Like, they've spent 750000 to put the bike lane in in the first place. Now they want to spend 400000 to take it out, build another bike lane somewhere somewhere else. How do you characterize that? Is that a waste of money? It's, it's, to me, Mike, it's just a piece of revenge politics where the tail is a few angry people are wagging the dog and it is not called for. It's an utter waste of money. And it's, we've already spent good money on creating a safe place for families and other people who have doubt, you know, not serious, crazy, you know, mammal kind of bike cyclists. They can now enjoy the park and ride around it. So, Let's just stay with the flow of every city in the world is investing hundreds of million. Edmonton is investing $100 million in bike lanes. Toronto, London, New York, Paris, they're all realizing that getting people on bicycles who can, who like to, giving them that option, a safe option, is a way to build a better city. And we've got to keep going in that direction. This is, a, this is a stupid step backwards, and it's entirely unnecessary. Let me play another clip here for you from Phil Rankin on an earlier show, Peter, and get your thoughts. As Vancouver lawyer, he represents elderly and disabled clients who say that the, the bike lane discriminated against them and their enjoyment of the park because they can't use a bike lane, they can't ride a bike. Here is his take on the bike lane, and then I'll get your thoughts. Phil Rankin. People have stopped going to the park. It's become a private park for the elitist bicyclists. They don't call themselves elitist because they're ideologues who believe that somehow... They're saving humanity. Well, they're, all they've done really is restrict the park to a large demographic in this city, the elderly, seniors, people for whatever reasons and families that need to drive. Peter, what do you say to him? Well, if he was right, I would be totally in support. If the park was in any way restricted to seniors or, or people with mobility issues, I would say, yeah, let's fix that. It is not in fact, the people who use the park the most during the week are seniors on little riding outings with their, with their friends in matching outfits who ride around there feeling safe and happy. This is a complete fabrication, which I don't understand at all. Peter, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it a lot. Okay, Mike, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.